Welcome to The Lens. I'm Ollie Barrett, and today I'm going to be joined by Amanda McKenzie, Chief Executive of Business in the Community, and by Ozzy Clark-Bins, who has been chairing the Youth Advisory Board of Business in the Community and finds himself in an organisation called Design Talent. We're going to be talking about how to navigate your way through an organisation without upsetting too many people along the way and how organisations can make best use of young talent from within and outside their organisations. Now, let's go to the conversation. Welcome to The Lens. I'm Ollie Barrett. And joining me through The Lens today is Ozzy Clark-Bins. Good afternoon, Ozzy. Good afternoon, Ollie. How are you doing? I'm very well indeed. Uh, Ozzy, you are a man of many talents and many hats, uh, of which we will explore some uh, today. Uh, I do want to take you back there and tell us what your very first job was. What was your first step on the path? first job was uh, as a labourer, so helping, um, there was a guy down the bottom of my road, he had a kitchen and bathrooms business, so I went around helping him and his brothers in their business fitting kitchens and bathrooms, that was my job, kind of sweeping up and taking things away, making sure I didn't paint people's nice lights and lamps and other stuff. And you were still at school at this point? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was 16, I was 16, then after that, got my first two retail jobs um, for Christmas. And so that was the sort of Christmas season, and then what happened next? Christmas season, and so I I continued working full time um, right up until my final year of university, until I did my internship with Accenture, um, then Channel Four and City, and then I got my sort of first real job, I would say, um, at Thomson Reuters in talent management and organisational development. Another huge string to your bow, though, I think, has been um, wearing other hats, almost sitting on other boards, advisory boards. You were the first ever young mayor of the Olympic Village. You've been chairing business in the community's advisory, uh, youth advisory panel. When was the first time you first said, I'm going to do something other than my day job? When did that start? I can tell you exactly when it would. It was June 6, 2003. And I remember that specifically because I was in a room in East Scotland Yard and there were about 160 other young people. We'd already been there once and we'd been invited back to talk to the police about how they can better engage with us as young people. I remember sitting in the room thinking, I'm the youngest person here and everyone has to self-nominate. So I stood up and I was like, oh, hi, I'm Ozzy. I'm the youngest in the room. I think if we're going to represent all voices, then we should hear from those of us who are the youngest as well. So put myself forward. And that was the first time I joined a panel and a board and a group like that, working with the Met and helping them look at their strategy and engagement of young people across the city. And that led to a particularly important chapter in 2007. Just reflect a little bit about what happened. That was a very dark time. Sort of after this obviously 7-7 bombings and stuff, obviously I was there invited to join what was known as a diamond group. Um, So it's working and advising the commissioner, deputy assistant commissioners, around what had happened in the aftermath of the bombing, kind of so sort of high level, very, very secretive. Um, But obviously a specific part of my role in being it was really about how they engage with young people and young people who might be fear they are being marginalized or picked upon but also how the police can reassure young people about their safe and they're being kept safe across the capital and i think that was a very important time um for me but also working working with them and kind of demonstrating what young people can do when you put young people in the room people who are more old who are older and more experienced but having a different perspective and how you can come up with better creative solutions together it sort of strikes me, Ozzy, that you could be carving out a career in any sector you wanted to. Um, you've chosen the private sector. You're working with an organisation, Design Talent. Why have you made that particular choice? Um, well, I think if you look at the work I'm doing with BITC and the work I'm doing with RNIB as a trustee there and the work I do at Design Talent, I think it's 
not really about having one career. I think careers are a multitude of different things. And for me, it's about full-time at work in the private sector. And that's what I join. You know, I have background in psychology. I'm a consultant in HR. It's great. I love that. But at the same time, outside of work, I find time to do things in the third sector as well. And Because, you know, 24 hours in a day, but it's how you use them. It's what I enjoy. <laughs> I love it. And you have been sharing uh, the Youth Advisory Panel for Business in the Community. Uh, for those not yet familiar, I can't believe listen to the listeners to the Lens aren't. Uh, how, how do you describe uh, BITC to someone who's never heard of it before? I always say BITC is a network of businesses trying to do good. And they're on a journey, um, which is to being more responsible employers. And some are doing great work and they're sharing that practice. And others are saying, we recognise it's important. So how do we do that? And BITC is helping them do that. And us as a youth panel is supporting BITC and their members on that journey. And it's easy to see these big businesses as knowing it all. You know, they've got a lot of resources and yet you're there giving them advice, uh, which sounds reasonable to me. Uh, what sort of advice were you giving them? So, you know, one of our special focuses was around race and what was then, you know, the, what is now the race equality campaign. And I think talking to businesses about intersectionality between youth um, and race, and so in particular, youth unemployment. So what does it mean to have young leaders who are um, locked out of the employment and, and, and working and they're not able to kind of meet their potential. What's what's the wasted cost for us as a country, as a society, but also to businesses? Where's the talent they're losing? But also how do they change that? How do they make the structure in the organisation better and stronger? But also how do they then, when those young leaders come in, encourage them and nurture them and help them progress through the organisations into leadership leadership positions? And I'm sure that will resonate with people listening. So somebody says, look, I'm awake to that problem. I want to solve it in practical terms. What are some things you've seen done? So I think one of the first important things for me is always to recognise the problem. And so part of that, I think, comes back down to measurement. You have to be open and honest with the data. Many companies are very, very scared to measure it. But it's, you know, I would say if you look at some of the big tech companies, for example, every year, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, for example, they publish their stats and their data. And it's not fantastic about the, you know, gender balance and but also the, the ethnic balance of their workforce. We're noticing more organisations are doing it here. So PwC recently released their data and they said, you know, they've, they've noticed that, you know, there's a 13% sort of pay gap between ethnic minority staff in your organisation. So I think once you're aware of what the problems are and how they present themselves to your organisation, you've got to work on designing those solutions and working with the employees and the people who are impacted, but also with the leaders who want to make a difference. So you've become more transparent about that. You're having an internal conversation. Have you got any examples of something that happens next, a real practical change that someone makes, particularly, let's say, to drive up the number of people applying from black and ethnic minorities to join their organisation? What works in practice? It's obviously different for every organisation, but I think one of the things that I've seen that works really well, and this is well documented, is just something as simple as blind TVs. Some of the best solutions are the most simple. And so blind CVs, what are we talking about stripping out? So blind CVs, we're talking about in particular stripping out things such as name, um, also stripping out universities, mm. um, and stripping out other, or not asking questions about certain factors or, or background information. For example, one, I spoke to one company before and they were asking about, do you play a musical instrument? And the challenge with that is, well, you're more likely to play a musical instrument if you come from a certain background. And that background is as likely to be a person of colour. Um, and so you, you are sort of subtle biases that are creeping into the work that you're doing. So it's stripping some of those things out. OK, so two questions on that. Um, what do you say to the employer who says, it's really important for me to get a sense of what makes a person tick? And that doesn't fly off the page to me in their qualifications. It does come to me through their hobbies and their passions and the interests. And Ozzy, you want to take those away. So it doesn't, doesn't feel right to me. What do you say to that employer? I'd say, well, 
I hope you don't hire people based on their CV alone. You know, obviously, when you hire someone, it's a process you go through. And so CV is an important part of someone demonstrating a summary of their ability to do a job. And then you move into your interview stages. And I think when you meet that person, you can talk to them and try and explore what their interests are and what their hobbies are. But also there are other activities that help you demonstrate their skills and their capabilities. Okay, fair enough. Now, what do you say to the student who has uh, worked incredibly hard to get into a prestigious university? And part of the reason for working all those long hours at their uh, student desk was to get into a prestigious employer. And now uh, we want to take away uh, that uh, that very prestigious name from their CV. How, how do we explain that to the student of today? I think if you're fighting for your privilege, you're clearly not fighting for equality. If you're fighting for find ways to demonstrate um, or to play into biases that say you might be better qualified than someone else or better than someone else because of this university. I think that, that, that represents a challenge. Everyone works hard in their degrees. Yeah, wow. This is going to be a bigger conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> what uh, people listening say. A lot of people think that becoming a trustee of a charity is something for their later years. And perhaps that's because they feel that at that point they might have more time, more wisdom, whatever that means. You are a young trustee of the RNIB. Um, what would you say to charities considering taking on younger trustees or other young people, if I can say that, uh, thinking of uh, stepping into those positions? What are your reflections and any, any cautionary tales as well? What, 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 um, what questions should they be asking themselves? So I would say to those charities, those bodies considering taking on young trustees, definitely do it. The key thing to understand, and for me, I think what was important for the process was the trustees were very clear about what they were looking for and what they wanted to see. And it wasn't just a list of you need to have this experience and that experience, but it was also demonstrating an understanding of what does it mean to be a, to be a trustee. You hold a fiduciary and legal responsibility for the solvency and the good running of that organisation. If you're going to be a trustee, you need to understand that. And so that's what you know. I had to demonstrate from my interview process was my understanding of what that meant and how I had applied my skills in strategy and critical thinking to different situations I'd faced that may not have been as a trustee or, or a board director before, but how they would apply to challenges the charity was facing. And I would say to those young, young leaders looking to apply, you should apply. You know, we have more of us need to apply so people start seeing there is interest here in us doing this work. Um, but also be mindful about your skills. Really focus on the strategic roles that you've played and how you've delivered that. The role of a trustee isn't necessarily uh, operational delivery, but it is strategic advice. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a key distinction to remember. Uh, I wish we had longer today. Um, sometimes in our conversations around responsible business and business in the community, uh, we're talking to people who already get it. That's my shorthand way of saying <laughs> it. Who, who, who needs to wake up and smell the coffee? Who, uh, who troubles you? You don't have to name names, but there are things that the business community do that you look at and you say, that's just not cool. And we have to have a conversation about this. You know, I, I, we do a lot of work with startups. Um, and the thing that fascinates me, but also frustrates me, is how many people are starting new businesses and or, or they're SMEs already. And they continue to apply the same draconian ideas around people management to their practice and to how they run their organisation. You know, what, if you look like, at the hmm? what, what's an example? A perfect example, I think, is is holiday allowances. So legally, by law, everyone's entitled to five point six weeks of holiday per year, plus bank holidays, so on and so forth. But many companies will say, well, we'll give you, you know, twenty days holiday plus your eight bank holidays, and that's your holiday allowance. Whereas Giving someone time off from the business costs you nothing. If you're paying, if you have salaried employees, it, it costs you no extra money. But what it does do is encourages a bond of trust between you, the employer, and your employer. It says, I trust you to take as much time as you need off from work to be rested, to be well, well you know, to be, to be well, well thought out about how you approach your work. 
and more considered in your approach. And what we see from that is high levels of productivity. So unlimited leave is a great way of doing it. And startups often get that balance wrong. Yeah, I think I think you see some startups do it. And I think some startups get that balance wrong. And in terms of, you know, many people say, well, this is how it was done in my old organisation. The question I always ask is, just because that's how it was done, is that how it should be done going forward? You know, Is that how it should be ultimately? And almost empowering them to write new rules, I suppose. But I think that's the way we do it, right? I think you write new rules. If you look at, I think it was back in 2011, the document Netflix released about their culture that kind of took the world by storm. It was 127 slides. That's unheard of. No one reads 127 slides except 17-something million people have viewed that document since it was published because they were talking about rewriting all the rules. And my favourite lesson from them is they say, you know, we don't have a clothing policy but no one comes to work naked you don't need rules for everything sometimes just trust the people to get it right (laughs) i like it ozzy thank you for all the time you give to other people and thank you for giving us your time today no worries thank you for having me on and now joining me in the studio is amanda mckenzie chief executive of business in the community and someone who has worked in a number of organizations including aviva bt hp and many more amanda welcome thank you amanda i ask all of uh, my guests on the lens to Take us back to their very first job. So you have done many things. However, where did it start? Um, It started in the Darrington Hotel on the edge of the A1. Yes. uh, Near Ferrybridge Power Station, if you happen to know that. Yes. Um, And I used to do the washing up in the hotel kitchen uh, for £1.72 an hour. And and then they'd ask me to make the prawn cocktails as well oh. and and put together the um, the cakes. Yeah, uh, not too much fairy liquid in those prawn cocktails. No, I didn't. No. I tried my best not to mix them up. And yeah. then... And what was that, summer job, holidays? Or yes, like holiday job? job. And then the following summer, um, they decided to go slightly upmarket, but it's relative here. Mm. And they asked me to play the piano in their, in inverted commas, cocktail bar. Yes. But I still only got paid £1.72 an hour. Gosh, and maybe <laughs> tips, I don't know. And then what happened next? Just give us the quick whistle stop that got things started. Well, I then... Um, went to university and studied psychology. I then started my career in advertising and I then moved over to client side, to use a sort of old-fashioned way of describing it, um, and worked in various marketing roles, um, which... And then I joined various boards and yeah. bits and pieces. And by the way, listen, not just any old brands. We're talking about BT. We're talking about HP. Uh, we're talking about British Gas. You're on the board of Mothercare for several years. Is it possible to talk about a job where you learn the most? If you look back, and that might be a negative or a positive thing, I suppose. Oh, I'm, I think you definitely learn more when it's tough. Mm. Actually, it really, it really that awful phrase, which I know some people hate, which is "what doesn't kill you makes you stronger." Mm. I think is is sometimes quite true, but that doesn't legitimise bad behaviour. It just means you know when it's tough, you do learn a lot. Um, actually, in every way, I think I learnt a lot. I remember BT, my first year at BT, being incredibly tough because I'd gone from a company of a thousand people to a company of 130,000 people and your ability to get stuff done and make things happen, I really struggled to learn how to do that. And then, frankly, after that, after my first year, I loved it. Mm. I, you know, um, if you could go back to your former self on the first day of BT and give a piece of practical advice, what would that have been about getting stuff done in big organisations? Don't accept any bureaucracy. Be respectful of process because often it's there for a very good reason, but don't blindly accept it. Um, and don't be, um, what's the word, cowed, if you like, mm. by uh, the sort of the, the way people play seniority, suppose, which is a, is a big problem in big companies still, I think. I suppose getting that balance wrong, um, you could get lab- labelled a troublemaker, but perhaps that 
wouldn't have bothered you. Um, <laughs> um, maybe a change maker, maybe yes. a, a, you know something like that, a cultural pioneer or something rather than a troublemaker, but probably a troublemaker. And yes, I guess I wouldn't have minded that either, yeah. on the assumption that the output was was the right answer. And I think as long as you hopefully respect people on the way, no matter how good anybody is, and again, I'm not relating it to me, you know, you have to be respectful of people around you because everyone has a contribution. I think it's a fascinating blend though, isn't it? Because we always hear about these words around disruptive and innovative and entrepreneurial. And yet in the right context, that's wonderful. In the wrong context, it, it hacks a lot of people off. And I, and I think there's also a role for the leaders in an organisation to spot those people and ensure that their motivation's in the right place um, and somehow help their journey slightly. And I've noticed over the years the best leaders are able to do that and make and find that balance and somehow help it happen. You're now running Business in the Community, founded by the Prince of Wales. It is the Prince's responsible business uh, movement. Uh, to the uninitiated, how do you describe it? We convene and curate business in the UK. We have approximately a thousand members and our job is to help them be the very best they possibly can be at responsible business. So I think our job, I mean our kind of articles of, of the charity are about creating a sustainable future and, and, uh, and a fairer society. Um, but tangibly what does that mean in a company and it means everything from wouldn't it be great if um, a proportion of your um, uh, purchasing was always with social enterprise. Wouldn't it be great if you always found a way to ensure that your recruitment processes were socially mobile mm-hmm. or, or acknowledging social mobility, that you were always able to maybe find a place for some ex-offenders, some yep. ex-military. Buying um, from small companies. Completely, and that you have a really good small company policy so you don't go, right, well, we only pay people after two months. It's like, has anyone realised what it's like yeah. for small businesses? So literally looking across every one of your functions and going, I can behave more responsibly here. Yeah. And that drives a healthier society it, it, and it drives a better community, which is ultimately what we all want to be in. And so what do you say to the chief exec who says, OK, Amanda, what I'm very happy to do is run our business properly uh, by the rules in the most uh, ethically responsible way possible. What I'm not really able to do is go beyond that into the community, rolling my sleeves up, because frankly, that is quite distracting. It's also quite expensive. And I think there are some local charities and maybe we'll give them some money to do that instead. I would say to them, thank you very much for making your business as ethically responsible as you possibly can, of course. But actually, I suspect they can always go further. And then you have to go, well, if you're being ethically responsible, are you really, really thinking about the community that you serve? So actually, they'd probably contradict themselves, if I could be so bold. Um, And then beyond that, um, you know, people want to work for companies that are are vibrantly thinking about these issues. So having heard Aussie talk, you know, it is... If you look at the... Um, actually, I think Unilever have got um, some great um, stats around how they're driving employee pride, and obviously all companies do customer sat equivalent in mm. their own companies. Um, and I think just being engaged in the global goals work drove their customer, their employee satisfaction by something like... To 20 basis points. Mm. And you've mentioned the Global Goals a couple of times. Uh, I know you've been chairing Project Everyone. Uh, Just remind us, in a nutshell, the Global Goals. These are set through the UN? 
Yes, it's the, it's the UN's to-do list. It's yeah. the global... It's the, you know, it's the, what was the, the Millennium Development Goals updated for 2015. Mm. Like a strategy document for the planet. The world, exactly yeah. that. Um, but, but importantly, based on a premise that if, if every business does its bit, if every person does its bit, then we'll achieve yeah. them. But, but the fundamental for us, which is, I think, what business in the communities um, got a lot of... Um, brilliance at doing in the past is is the tangible actions that make that happen yeah. so it's it's obviously campaigning and and really thought leading on some of the big issues but also it's it's tangibly on the ground going we've got 4000 people into work that have been in long term unemployed yeah. we've you know and begun to really tackle some of that let's talk just very briefly about uh, responsible business particularly in the digital uh, world i think a lot of people when we're talking about this Area they think about uh, you know nuts and bolts and light bulbs and uh, and, and very tangible things. Um, is there such a thing as um, you know responsibility in the digital world? And uh, what what are some examples? What 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 what's on your mind? Well, I defy anyone to see it, to read a newspaper and not see some sort of headline which is catastrophizing about job losses because of digital. So it, it, it's incredibly evident. Um, and I think our work, which was to look at the unintended consequences of this digital revolution and, and kind of, if you like, just think to the end of the sentence. So don't assume it has to be job losses or is there a cohort of your employees that you could retrain who need digital skills? So it's just really being thoughtful about this um, and, and really listening to customers, what they might want and of course, there's always business pressures in terms of, of, of money. But is the short term, is it short termism? And is that really right? Isn't there a challenge that in this digital um, revolution, if we can call it that, some parts of the country simply get left behind? Perhaps that's a grossly uh, sweeping statement. But I, I hope you know where I'm going with that. C- completely. I and I couldn't agree more. I, and I think, frankly, it's already begun to happen, which is why, for instance, the BBC moving to Salford was very thoughtful, which is why companies looking to set up tech labs around different parts of the country is absolutely right. I, you know, sorry, London, but I don't want to hear anyone saying, bravo, we're having X thousand more new jobs in London. Don't care. Put them somewhere else. Mm. And as a, as a lass from Yorkshire, frankly, Put them in the Northern Powerhouse, please. But that's a little self-interested. So, you know, let's just really think about that and what could be done. And there are some fantastic pockets of it. And there's some really wonderful social enterprise that's um, popping up again in the tech space that is not making that assumption. It has to be, you know, Shoreditch and thereabouts. Um, so, you know, we're getting there, but we've got to all be quite noisy on this. And I think proper leadership from our biggest companies and, frankly, from a lot of those American companies that are over here, that that would be to go, it might feel disruptive in the first place, but actually we need to invest in this um, you know, I, compl- I completely agree. I'm going to take you back to uh, washing up uh, stack yes. in the sink just yeah. off the A1, just yeah. as you're starting out. Uh, single piece of advice uh, you'd give to yourself if you had a couple of moments uh, going back through the going back through the years. Oh, it's pretty much anything that you'll ever be faced is not worth worrying about. And is the interpretation from that that you've ended up worrying unnecessarily i think we do i think we all we worry we we have a dialogue in our heads and and you know i i was listening to aussie and thinking good lord how what on earth can i possibly how could i help aussie because it feels like he's so talented so brilliant so sorted and it's like mm, i think i might be redundant um but 
actually what happens is because we have you know older people because we've got experience so one of the questions i'm going to ask him is what can older people bring to younger people yes, in the good. workplace. It really has to happen. But one of the things I think that does happen it, it, that you only learn by experience is that you do over-worry about things that arguably just don't need worrying about. Um, Have and you got any, yeah, I'm conscious about time today, Amanda, well, but think, is there an example of something okay, that you think I think I people in their 20s are very self-conscious. They over-analyse a particular moment. There'll be a meeting with someone, you know, that they'll go... they'll they'll literally relive that meeting several times. And and I remember someone once saying to me, you know, are you worried? Yes, fine. Can you change the outcome by worrying? No. Then it's totally irrelevant. Stop it. It's just indulgent. Get over yourself. If you can change it, what are you going to do about it? Do something. To the younger listener who has a role to play within potentially a large organisation and yet is hugely ambitious and innovative and all, all, all the good things, but doesn't want to upset the apple cart. And I'm taking us back to our troublemaking conversations. Mm. A, a, any piece of advice for them? What, how, how they get heard without pissing everyone off? Is that what you're saying that, to me? That is a better way to ask the question. <laughs> um, just, I suppose it comes back to the thing I said around being respectful of people. Respect is not deference. So being, don't don't be cowed by seniority. You know, I've loved getting notes in my role that people just write and go, you know, I hope you don't mind, but I really feel the need to tell you this. As long as it's done in a way that's not angry, that's thoughtful, and that you know that their in, intent of saying it is to make things better. You know, and through my life, I've always felt if I really wanted to say something to the CEO of the company I was working for, I'd say it. I'd say it in an email. I'd hopefully say it politely. And absolutely would always get a response. And it yes. wasn't because it was me. It was because you do it in a way that they understand that your, your motive is absolutely the right one. Well, almost as if we planned it, you have summed up one of our goals for the lens, which is making those thoughtful connections, particularly across generations and organisations. So um, thank you for your support as we go along uh, this series. A real pleasure. Amanda McKenzie, thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome to The Lens. Uh, I'm Ollie Barrett and I'm joined today by Ozzie Clark-Bins and Amanda McKenzie. Uh, hello, both of you. Hello. hello. Now, you have been tuning into uh, my conversations with uh, each of you. And so I'm just going to kick us off today, uh, actually, not because I'm feeling lazy, uh, but for other reasons. I want to know what you'd like to ask each other. And I should just remind our listeners, Amanda uh, is currently running uh, business in the community. Previous roles uh, have been on the board of Mothercare at HP, BT and many others besides. Uh, Ozzy Clark-Bins was the youngest mayor of the Olympic Village, junior mayor of the Olympic Village, currently finds himself in a fascinating organisation called Design Talent. And there's a crossover here because, Ozzy, you were chairing the Youth Advisory Board for Business in the Community. Yes. Got it. Ozzy. And brilliantly. Thank, Thank you. you. Brilliantly. Brilliantly said. Well, I want to know what sort of advice you were, uh, you were giving. But uh, maybe I'll start with uh, you, Amanda. Question for Ozzy. So, Ozzy, um, I look at all you've done and completely uh, love the notion of you've got to get diverse voices into a room and younger people, which is obviously the, the core of a lot of the work you've done to date. Um, and I and I end up slightly worrying what on earth us oldies, in relative terms, can can actually contribute to you. So I think when we look across, you know, the, the work we've done at BITC, but also across businesses more broadly, we're talking about intergenerational workforces. And I think the key thing is... Everyone has to be open to learning from everyone else. 
Um, I think the sources of learning and understanding and our perception of those are changing. Typically, it was very hierarchical. If you're more senior, I must listen to you, I must follow. But I think what we're demonstrating and we're seeing, is, especially as we move into a more digital economy and a more digitized world, is that learning is to be had from either end. So for me, it's just being open to learning from what I might have to say, my point of view, my perspective, as whilst I have to be open from the perspective of older and senior leaders in the organisation as well. And I think part of that as well and I think what, what I've always thought was great about BITC is where you have the opportunity to champion younger voices to be heard around the decision making table And do you think there are any instances where experience just has to be adhered to? No. Adhered? Oh really? No okay. I, 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 I think if we put those rules in place or those mental frameworks in place we limit ourselves to learning and to opportunities that come from different places Mm -hmm. i think you know to your point you made earlier about respecting process i think yes we should respect process but not be encumbered to it and the same way as you should be respectful of hierarchies that exist to help businesses and organizations function for a reason right you know um I always forget his name, but but the, but the head of Pixar films, he always had one rule, and he was is his job. He was the film director to make sure that the the cut that went in the can that went out to everyone, he was happy with it. And it's his decision. He said, anyone can ask me anything; they can contribute anything. We have to have one rule that my decision at one point has to be final, mm-hmm. and that we ha- if I make a decision, it's either yes or no. We move forward together as a team, and I think that's the important part of leadership to say. We're going to be open to everyone and hear what everyone has to say, but everyone has to respect the fact that if someone makes the decision, you've got to, go, made. For- you've made, yeah. you've got to go forward with it. Mm. Well, look, I'm all for getting younger voices into the boards of organisations, Aussie. but if we jump around industries, are we going to suddenly start having, you know, newly qualified doctors doing heart surgery or, you know, newly qualified military individuals as the boss of a nuclear submarine? I mean, presumably running a very large company is a extremely tricky and detailed operation so uh, so 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 can you can you see any issues there uh, or am I, am I am I being a bit silly there i would yeah <laughs> <laughs> i would say it's to be careful not to conflate the two so talking about someone who's newly qualified doing a highly technical and highly skilled position mm. Um, or they've just qualified by themselves independently would obviously be somewhat reckless. Mm. But having individuals as part of boards and be that formally as members of boards or implementing structures of, say, shadow boards, mm. where you bring these young leaders together and they can tackle, you know, under NDA, whatever it needs to be, some of the similar challenges of, of, of the more experienced leaders in the business and bring their thoughts to bear that help improve the decision making what we're talking about here is how do we improve the decision making process and the way in which businesses are managed and they run they're organized and part of that is through taking account of every voice in the organization mm. as that might be someone who is less experienced because also that means they have less baggage mm. so they don't see things in the same way as everyone else does you might say well this is the way it's always been done go, well it doesn't make sense i just i just don't get why when you interrogate that you know the five wise technique for example if you can't explain it Maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe what, it's what to are these five whys? The five whys is just a technique of of questioning or investigating a topic or an idea. You mm-hmm. just literally keep asking why. Someone answers, and you say why, and you keep going down to sort of five levels, five steps of questioned about why, and you hopefully should get to the real root cause of the issue or what's going on there. Mm. And broadly speaking, Amanda, where are you on this? Would you like to see more young people on boards? I certainly think that their voices should be heard. And and I I do completely agree that perspective. And as you say, no baggage. You just come at things in a much purer way. Mm -hmm. So it's incredible how through a a, a big business 
life, you, you, the assumptions, so often you, I find myself asking, saying, but that's an assumption you've made. So maybe you can unpick that and it doesn't matter. You know, sorry, horrible. Yeah, and going back to these cliches. whys. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's so true. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I'd add, I'd add to that. It's If I look at my own path today, it's where organisations have made those opportunities for me to gain that experience. So I can mm-hmm. sit around a table with senior leaders and hold my own, engage in constructive conversation, and to your point, you know, not, not feel intimidated by the people around the table. Mm. I think making those opportunities for people younger in their careers, uh, earlier in their life... Well, why not? Let's just grasp the nettle on this, because it's been on my mind, so I've got to spit it out. <laughs> Ozzy, you are, and you have been, on the Youth Advisory Board for Business in the Community, whereas at the RNIB... You're a trustee, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And you're a fully-fledged trustee. You're not a junior trustee. Mm-hmm. You're not on the youth trustee yep. advisory shadow board. What is the case, uh, Amanda? I'm not talking about literally putting Aussie on your board. Uh, but you could do. There you go. <laughs> yes, There's enough. Uh, for certain. <laughs> because your board is, um, you know, it, it's chief execs, and I understand why. Uh, but there will be people, chief execs alike, thinking about whether their board is a bit too old on average nothing wrong with being old but it's just an observation we are looking actually to reduce the size of our board so it might make that very (laughs) tricky Um, but we will also alongside that have a more formal advisory board and so consequently there's absolutely you know and 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 truthfully in the past we've had the head of the tuc on our board you know so the whole idea of having you know an employee slash trade unionist on on boards you know that's a whole nother debate again you know but we've sort have done that so there's no reason why we shouldn't look to do that in the future no i can totally imagine it uh you've asked each other conversation uh questions uh but i'm going to ask you to give each other a piece of advice having sat on uh, amanda's advisory board ozzy uh a change maker she is already uh you know feet under the desk but what would you what would you say what would you impart as we as we leave the lens so i suppose i would say you know obviously giving one of the things i've been talking about you know continue to champion um new voices um, around the decision-making table um, and taking their advice. I'm going to keep it short and sweet as that. Continue to champion new voices. I will do my very best. And I, I'm not sure I dare give you any advice, actually. <laughs> um, but I would just say, frankly, yes, I will. And you just keep doing it. So, you know, it's a massive service to everybody and we're all better for it. I'm very grateful for your time, Ozzy Clark-Bins, Amanda McKenzie. Thank you very much. Thank Surely. you. <laughs> That was The Lens, hosted by me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe in iTunes and you'll get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community programme supported by Fujitsu. Today's show is produced and directed by Chris Cartwright with production management by Hannah O'Rourke. Music and editing by Adam Smythe. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.